I'm Jose Solis. We are in the midst of unprecedented times. As you all know, a global pandemic has altered the way in which we live. The currents have come down in theaters all over the world as we try to protect the most vulnerable. But lately I've been thinking a lot about Anne Washburn's Mr. Burns, a post-electric play. Not because of the apocalyptic setting, mind you, but because of the way in which it celebrates storytelling through oral tradition, therefore celebrating what makes us human. Luck has it that theater kid eagerness led me to record both March episodes of Token Theater Friends very early during the month. No one could have imagined what the days ahead would bring. The shows I discussed with my guests have closed or have been postponed indefinitely. And as I wondered whether the episodes had a place in this strange new world, I kept coming back to the characters in Washburn's play who get together to reenact an old episode of The Simpsons. And it made sense to me. For now, let theater critics, journalists, theater fans, and theater lovers continue the tradition. Let us be the keepers of the flame, the guards of the ghost light, if you like, while we wait for our beloved curtains to rise again. I hope you enjoy this episode. Welcome to Token Theater, friends. I'm Jose, and today I'm here with one of my favorite directors, honestly, and I think a bona fide genius. Uh, welcome, Sammy Cannell, or Sammy Cannell. <laughs> Thank you. Such a, such a joy to have you here, because I have like a gazillion questions, because you are working on so many things at the moment. Like right now, for instance, you have Endlings at New York Theater Workshop running through March. Yes. And then you're also working on your first opera. Yes. Through Carmen at Lincoln Center. So let's get started with Endlings, I guess. In our previous episode, we had Celine Song and Wai Jing Ho, one of the stars. And I, you know, when I, whenever I see one of your shows specially, I often wonder, the moment when you get that script and you open it and you read it, when do you know what the show will look like? <laughs> I think that, to me, uh, when I read a script and I can see it in my head or like some version of it in my head, that's when I know that I should uh, try to be considered to direct it. Oh, wow. um, where it's like a script like Endlings I read and like saw the whole thing in my head or at least with semblance of what I thought it looked like. And then sometimes scripts I read I'm like, this is genius, but I don't, my, my brain doesn't gravitate towards how to, how to visualize it and how to bring it to life. So. Um, uh, in that case, it's really about that initial impulse of visualization. Um, and for me with Endlings, it was about, uh, because the show's about Korean freedivers, it was about what it looks like to see their work underwater. Um, and, oh, of course, it's not the whole show. It's really only seven minutes of the show. But it was sort of the key to unlocking a lot of other things in the show for me directorially. That's so impressive. So, like, I mean, I don't want to get like all like metaphysical and stuff, but in a way, it sounds like the projects that pick you. I sort of feel that way. I mean, but but in, in a in a in a non pompous way, hopefully. But it, it just that, that it's about clicking. That it's like uh, it, it's never a personal thing about who's working on it. I mean, sometimes you're like, oh, I would love to work with that person or something like that, but. Um, it, to me, it's really like, am I so grabbed by the story that I can envision it as I'm reading or as I'm listening or um, something like that? Um, 
or sometimes somebody will say, like, I'm writing a musical about this, and then you're like, I know what that looks like. Or you think you know what it looks like, and then it changes 57 times, and you have designers who tell you what it looks like, but I think that initial kernel is, like, so key for me. So do you remember, because that, I was not expecting the answer, so <laughs> do you remember then, you know, what were the images that, you know, that first came to mind when, you, when you're thinking about, like, Evita or Ragtime, and we're going to get into deeper into those later, but I would just love to know about that first impression that you had. Yeah, um, I think that, like, in those cases, because they're pre-existing shows that I um, grew up on, um, uh, the, like, visualization of what they could look like was really the moment where I was like, oh, I think I should try to direct a production now. Mm -hmm. uh, because, uh, like, when I was... Uh, the ragtime idea came about because um, I was excited about site-specific musical theater and made a list of all musicals that could be performed site-specifically and where they could be performed. And when I got to that pairing, and I was like, where could ragtime be? What are the sites in ragtime? And it was like that, um, you know, like, Jimmy Neutron brain blast moment. <laughs> where you're like, oh, Ellis Island. And it, immediately I knew what that looked like in my head and I think understood what the experience of that would be um, and similarly with Evita it was like when I read in an autobiography or not, 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 not an, a biography she did not write it um, uh, about um, trauma in, in Ava's life as a teenager that was the moment where I was like oh I see two women on stage um, f figuring out what this age difference means um, so uh, for me, it's a lot of like click moments uh, of no instinctively knowing when an idea is like the right one to pursue somehow, or at least the right one to pursue as a starting point. Is there a classic show maybe that you would love to direct at some point, but you haven't found that that click? Oh, interesting. Yeah, I think to, to me, it's shows that I've seen like genius productions of that I don't that I can't think of how I could do better in a way that, like, I love Pippin, but to me, Diane Paul's production is everything. <laughs> so I I don't, there, I've now had a click moment where I was like, oh, this would be my way of doing it differently. Um, or like Billy Elliot, I like loved that production, I love that show, but I can't figure out how I would do it in a way that is not uh, just striving for the same thing that that production aimed for. Um, Maybe one day, it'll just light out. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe one day, yeah. yeah. I love, for instance, what you did with, with Avita, which uh, ran at City Center last year, and you were a big fan of anything related to that musical. Yeah. And I love how your production was a combination of, you know, honoring and a tribute to the uh, original mm -hmm. production. But also, it had like such like the you know like the Sammy stamp. <laughs> and is there any way that you can maybe explain to me yeah. um, how you achieve that balance? Because you know it was both something of the past, mm -hmm. but also a production of the future. Like if we see more Evitas, I want them to be your Evita. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. Um, our, our, we had so many conversations about Evita, and it was like so beautiful to talk about it. Um, uh, yeah, I think that to me, when I'm given the opportunity to, to approach a piece of work that already exists and has already had productions that are um, brilliant, it's 
about what it means to tell the story now and in the given place that I'm given the opportunity to tell it because like for example uh, doing round time on Ellis Island was about the space mm-hmm. like I, I I loved the original Broadway production right um, so it wasn't about trying to uh, go go better than it because I, I don't it's just um, time and place right like and and with Vita it was what does it mean to tell this story now like I how Prince's production is is everything to me um, uh, but that was forty years ago so you know I think considering what that material means in this day and age is is a is a gift that directors get to play with and you know we're particularly lucky in the case of something like a Vita that. Um, uh, the writers are like are with us and are eager for for interpretations that respond to the time and place that we're in um, and uh, are supportive and I think that that's uh, that's beautiful. I don't think it works with every show, um, but uh, uh, I got lucky with you know the few existing shows that I've I've directed in the past few years. Um, you grew up in New York and you're you grew up surrounded by theater. Yes. But when and how did you know that you wanted to become a director? Like, did you observe a moment when that, uh, you know, what a director does was nebulous, and then you were like, oh, this is what I want to do? Yeah. I, uh, my, my parents told me that when I was a toddler, like, my favorite thing to do was um, put on shows with little um, hotel shampoo bottles. You, oh, you know, like the mini shampoo bottles. <laughs> that was so cute. <laughs> Where's Sammy? Like, she's at the bathroom counter, like, putting on shows with shampoo bottles. Um, uh, so they claim, like, they knew when I was two, and I was like, yeah, right. Like, that's, that's, that's funny. Um, but I had a bizarre experience when I was a teenager where um, uh, I was in a summer program in, or something, like a summer camp in my town, and we were doing a production of Joseph, and um, uh, the director of the program uh, was like covering for a lot of people who were out, so he would leave the room, and because I happened to be the oldest, I was 13, um, he would say, uh, Sammy's in charge, and just leave the room. And it, it forced me to, to, to like learn what directing, directing was. If you're listening, I'm doing air quotes. Um, um, but but uh, because I had to, tell the other kids where to go. Um, and I think that it was such a bizarre experience to have at 13 because directing is not something that's taught in middle school, but um, he ended up crediting me as the director of that production. Um, I got paid $1,000, I was 13, it was like, <laughs> I was just like. Um, and then uh, the next year he hired me again and the next year again. So um, it, I'm sure the work was terrible. I, in fact, I know it because I, I watched it and I, I don't really consider it to be directing. But um, I think the, the inkling that that was something that I could do at that age, or, you know, the inkling at that age that that was something that I could do eventually um, was really meaningful. Um, and I think, like, the ultimate click moment for me was uh, when I was a freshman in, in college, um, I went to go see the revival of, the Broadway revival of Pippin. And um, I was turned around in my seat at, the, at intermission, and I saw... Diane Paulus in the back of the house, and there was something to me about seeing the person whose brain this version of the show came from that sort of aligned everything about what I wanted to do. Um, because I was like, oh, there's a human who had this idea uh, and then made it happen, and she's right there, and 
uh, I look a little bit like her, so like this is an achievable goal, <laughs> you know. And so um, that that was sort of my like aha moment. How would you define directing when someone asks you what do you do and they have no idea? Maybe they've never seen a show before, <laughs> they've never seen a movie or a TV show. Like, how do you explain what directing is? Um, I'm so bad at this <laughs> uh, <laughs> because it's so many different things at so many different stages. Um, but I think that uh, to me, it's I'm stealing this from someone. <laughs> um, uh, but it, it's um, you're responsible for being the creator of the event uh, in the way that like if the if the writer or writers are responsible for being the creators of the script, you are responsible for the the time that people spend with your story, mm. um, uh, and so that it covers so many different things from like how uh, how the story is staged um, to uh, uh, the acting to um, dramaturgical support of the writers to um, uh, figuring out what the like holistic experience of coming to the theater that night is you know like so all of those things but I think also you know I'm, I'm lucky to get to work in a bunch of different like mediums uh, in terms of theater and then like theater adjacent mediums um, and the description of the job changes depending on any given project at any given time which is an exciting thing to me because you can you know flex different muscles what's the most underrated part about being a director oh gosh I think probably the community mm -hmm. like you just don't and I feel this more so on musicals than on plays but it's it's such a gift to have a job where you are where you are required to uh, collaborate very intensely every day, um, uh, and I really felt this like to the max on Avita because um, it was really like all my closest friends in theater working on that show together. Uh, not all of them, um, but but like a group of of my closest friends were together, and it was like we were just coming to hang out, but we were making art and we were being paid for it. So it was like um, it, it was kind of amazing um, that like when when you love your job that much, um, uh, it you don't think about it as a job anymore. I agree. Yeah, I know. Like, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I know what it's talking about. And you know, I yeah, that's so that's so beautiful because like you know, like I'm gonna officially name it like the Kennel Crew. And you know, we have someone like Jason Sherwood who's such a genius. Such a genius. Because we're in Avita, I just walked in and I just saw the flowers and I was like, holy shit. <laughs> and then he also designed Edlings, for instance. How, how do you sorry, sorry? How do you know when you found the collaborators that you want to be creating that art with? I think you know when you're in the trenches mm. um, <laughs> uh, because it's like uh, Endlings and Avita were both uh, hard shows. Like everything Jason and I have done together has been hard uh, in one way or another. It's not been like all right, that's done, <laughs> you know. Um, 
uh, either because of, in the case of Evita, the very tight time schedule in which we were making it, uh, in the case of Endlings, you know, putting a pool on stage, among other things. Uh, and I think you learn a lot about if you are uh, good collaborators when you are faced with like crises mm. uh, or theatrical crises, um, uh, and if you're responding with the same level of like calm and creativity, um, I think to to me that's a, a vibing thing. But he he and I were friends. I think this is a pretty common denominator of like my collaborations that like. Uh, in most cases, we were friends before we uh, started working together. So we had a foundation of like going to diners and talking about art that we could base our work off of. Um, uh, and I've had some amazing collaborations that have just started at the moment of collaboration. But I think that like in the case of Jason, and like in the case of um, uh, Bradley King, who who lit both Avita and um, and things. Uh, he was the lighting designer on, on Great Comet, and I was the associate director, and so got to know him for years as somebody who was like passing on the notes, you know, and that was so meaningful to me because we had a working relationship. It was a very different working relationship, but it meant that when we started working together as designer and director, or designer and director, we could hit the ground running in a way that we already had a language, we already knew and respected each other, and so that was, that was helpful. You are about to tackle your very first opera, and you're doing Carmen, which is like, you know, one of the most iconic. Sorry, I don't want to, like, put pressure on you. No! <laughs> I could put pressure on myself. <laughs> Why are you doing Carmen? Like, I'm so excited. You know, it's funny, because, because I've never directed opera before, um, I came in sort of with the perspective that, like, and, and also, this opera is... Uh, it's for one night. It's at uh, Rose Hall Lincoln Center. It's with Master Voices, um, and uh, we have a we tech dress and do the show all on the same day. So, oh my God. yeah. <laughs> when they asked me to, to do it, I was like, "What an amazing opportunity! Like, I really want to start working in opera, um, uh, but just making sure we're all on the same page that like I've never done this before, and this is like a very fast process." And they were they were so. Um, game and, and wonderful about it, but I think you know much of the work that I've done in, in theater to this point has been, um, for better or worse, like pretty concepty. Uh, in that there's been like a, a very clear uh, sort of um, version of it, like in the log line, you can say like you know this is the violet that was on a bus, you know, <laughs> and and I was like pretty specific with them up front that I just like, I was like, I just want to be honest, like, I don't think this is going to be like the Carmen that did this because I just want to stage it and tell the story in a way that like makes sure that I am serving the building blocks before I try to get fancy because I don't, I don't know this art form. I, I like go see it, I respect it, but I don't know if I'll be any good at it. And I think that I'm very grateful that, as an institution, they were like, that's totally cool. Um, it's one night, like, you know, uh, uh, stage it and tell the story, um, and, and, you know, don't worry about concept. So, um, uh, I'm, I'm grateful for that. In which ways, if any, would you say that approaching an opera uh, is different than approaching, like, a, a Broadway musical? Um, 
What, well, I think language is the first one. So like we're doing the uh, Sheldon Harnick English translation, which I'm very grateful for because um, uh, I don't speak French. Uh, <laughs> um, uh, so I guess, but what's tricky about it is there is no recording of the English translation. So I have to listen to the French recording and then understand where the, what, what the English is, so it's, it's almost just as, as hard. Um, we ended up making a sort of like d dummy recording to use, but it's, it's been hard to, to, to um, adjust to that because, and I really don't know how directors who do operas in languages they don't speak crack them, because I, I don't know how I would coach acting if I didn't, or not coach acting, but in opera, essentially coach acting, if you don't know what every word means. Mm -hmm. um, and I guess part of what I'm learning is that like directors of opera and conductors of opera know every word. Like, or at least like uh, Ted Sperling, who I'm working with, who um, is conducting the opera and he, he runs the organization, he, he knows what all of Carmen is and he's never done it in English before. So uh, it, I, I feel, I really feel the steep learning curve of it and I'm trying to, you know, catch up as much as I can, but I think my other concern is that, you know, uh, I, I am, I, my training is to fill every beat in the way of, in musical theater, you know, nobody just stands there for five minutes unless it's like a very specific singular number, um, but in opera that happens all the time. So my impulse is always to make something more complex and I don't think opera wants that. So I'm trying to like play with the push and pull of where my instincts are and where the art form is, which is hard. Uh, that's really fascinating. So basically, do not expect, if you go to Carmen, do not expect like singing bowls. Yeah, no, right. <laughs> we're a dancing bowl. <laughs> dancing bowl, but no, no singing bowls. I just thought about the fact that Carmen, in many ways, joins uh, this, uh, collection almost of, you know, thinking about like the mommy ragtime or thinking about Violet, who's like a very shy, uh, insecure woman who has to find herself in a way. Yeah. And even thinking about what you, what you did with Evita. And Carmen is joining this uh, family almost of unsung, no pun intended, unsung <laughs> heroines who you're giving them the opportunity to reclaim the narrative of the shows that they're in. And, and, and I wonder, you know, how, uh, if in any way this is going to come into effect in Carmen. And since I just thought about this, can you talk about a little bit about more, maybe it's an unconscious choice to give this, or it might be a conscious choice, which, I don't know, to give this women, these female characters, like the opportunity to like hold their narratives and be like, I'm in. Yeah, I mean, I think it's funny because when, when uh, you know, in like panels on female directors, uh, there are all these conversations about what does it mean for a show to be directed by a woman. Uh, and I, to me, it's that like, I don't think I'm setting out to direct a feminist production of Carmen, and yet every choice will naturally be from the perspective of a woman. So I think that naturally it'll just sort of like trend that way. Like, I didn't set out to direct a feminist production of Ragtime, but like, the choices that we made probably went more in, it went in a more specific direction because uh, 
Um, but I, I guess, like, to me, parts of the, sh the opera just jump out in ways that are different. Uh, if you think about them through the lens of being a woman, like, uh, you know, at the very end, um, when when she dies, hopefully, you know, no spoilers. You know, Carmen, you know she dies. Um, uh, but uh, it's so it's so wild to me because the violence sort of comes out of nowhere. And I was thinking about it in relation to like some research I was doing for another project on domestic violence, where I was like, oh, you know, statistics tell us that like in cases of domestic violence. Uh, the the time when a uh, a woman or a victim of any gender is most likely to be killed is when they are closest to freedom. Um, oh my god! Yeah, which is like like the moment where they are about to be free uh, is the moment where they are most likely to to be killed. And I was like, oh, actually, I think that's sort of Carmen's journey, where it's like she over the course of the opera goes on this process of like uh, coming into her her deep desire for freedom. And then at the end of the opera, uh, when she's essentially attained it, that's when, when you know, this crazy man kills her. Um, so, uh, yeah, but I, I, I think, not to say that, like, a, a, you know, a male or non-binary director wouldn't notice those things, but I think that, like, I, I'm probably more likely to than the average director, because I spent more time thinking about it. I always love to ask, uh, you know, uh, female artists and women about, you know, what's it like being a woman and all that stuff. Yeah. I, I don't think journalists give uh, women and underrepresented uh, people in the arts enough time to talk about craft. And we're always just talking about representation of that. But I do have to ask about, you know, thinking about just what happened, uh, and I'm, now, now I'm dating the show, what happened <laughs> this week where we saw, you know, the most competent women that the Democratic Party had to offer, yeah. not the most competent women, the most competent person. person. Yeah. She had plans for everything, and we saw how the country just turned her, you know, their back on her. Yeah. And I wonder if, any, you know, this theater is so male-dominated yeah. still, and there's like a handful. So what? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> there's a handful of, of directors, like like the Ed Policy you mentioned, Pam McKinnon yeah. and Rachel Chapkin, obviously. But you know, there's like a handful of women who get the opportunity to work in directing. And have you noticed, you know, the, the, the field in a way changing and being more receptive and maybe not focusing so much on a person's gender and their sex and just instead saying this is the best person for the for this work and for this piece? I wish. Um, I mean, I, part of me wonders if like the focus on gender is what's needed to get over the hurdle so that it then becomes the norm. It's like the way that people talk about post-racial casting, post-racial casting, right? Um, uh, if, like, we need to talk about it now so that in 20 years we don't have to talk about it. or um, But I feel it a lot because it's like 90% of the conversations that I have about projects include the phrase, we're looking for a female director or something like that. Um, and on the one hand, I'm thrilled that people are looking for women but sometimes don't really know what that means and sometimes get concerned that it's a box-checking mechanism. 
Um, uh, because there are so many female directors, uh, you know, maybe not like who are getting to work on Broadway, but there's so many female directors who are ready, um, that it feels like, I feel that when like, uh, if I end up in a conversation about like directing a Shakespeare play, I've never directed Shakespeare, I'm probably very bad at it, um, and it feels like sometimes there's a, we need a woman, I've heard of a woman, here, come here, whereas we would never, you know, you wouldn't go to Jerry Mitchell and say, come direct this Shakespeare play, unless he like, had a specific interest in, in, in Shakespeare plays, mm -hmm. right? So I think that there's a lack of nuance in the way that like hiring female directors and directors of color is, is approached in a way, in some cases. I, I hope that doesn't sound uh, snooty, um, but I just, I, I find that like there's so much nuance in being like, ah, that's the right male director for that piece, or that's what really gives such a good sense of what our you know male directors are good at, um, but I don't I don't know that that um, applies as much to women as I would as I would hope. Although personally, and I'm very very biased, so uh, uh, I'm sorry for saying this out loud. Although I would want to see a semi-channel version of every single show, <laughs> every single Thank musical, you. probably. I wonder if you know because I've also noticed that theater tends to be also like very like checkboxy. Like okay, yeah. we have Sammy now. We don't need to. Yeah, we don't need to think about mentoring and yeah. training yeah. and welcoming other young women directors. And 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 I wonder, you know, if you if you have any now this is like my Oprah moment. Yeah. If you have any words of encouragement for so many I know so many young women who admire you so much and you're always like asking like if you meet her, ask her this and this uh -huh. and this and what words of encouragement would you have for them? just to go back to the Shakespeare thing for one second to me there's no problem in somebody saying I know you don't do Shakespeare but I think this would be great because this right like uh, which is different from being like you're a director you're a woman this needs a woman Shakespeare <laughs> right like um, uh, uh, anyway that's that uh, but um, I, I feel like um, encouragement-wise, I, I just, I think there's so many amazing young female directors out, out there, um, and like more every day, um, and uh, uh, I'm excited about the work that everybody's doing and think that there's room for all of it, um, and uh, hope that somehow the issue gets better. I guess I don't... I don't claim to know how to fix it beyond the obvious things that everybody's talked about ad nauseum. Um, <clears throat> it was funny, I, I was asked <clears throat> by a publication to write an article about, uh, like an opinion piece about um, what it means that there are uh, five female directors on Broadway this season. And I went off on this like giant train where I was looking for statistics on the last 10 years to figure out if, the, if it has gotten better in any way. Those statistics didn't exist, so I like crunched them um, over the course of like one very long and sleepless week. <laughs> and we didn't end up publishing it for, for complicated reasons, but I, I am gonna post the statistics so that they're, they're available. 
Um, and I'm not a statistician by any means, but the trends that are revealed in them are like so heartbreaking um, because like, I crunch the numbers both for, for female directors and directors of color. And um, there are no consistent upward trends in the last 10 years in any category in the way of female directors of plays, directors of color of plays, uh, female directors of musicals, directors of color of musicals. Nothing goes like this. It's all random. And I was like, we started having this conversation prior to 10 years ago. So how is it that nothing has improved in the commercial sphere beyond like this year, which the statistics tell us is a fluke? I don't know. know. It makes me think about what happened a few years ago with the uh, when Hamilton swept the Tonys, and for the first time, there were four actors of color who won all the Tonys for musical performances. And then the next year, we were back to a whole lineup of white winners. Basically, it happens at the Oscars, it happens at the Emmys, and there's like this like lack of accountability, for because something you know this like fluke happens, and yeah. they're like, oh, we sold it. Let's move on and let's go back yeah. to what we're doing before. That's very depressing, Sammy, so thank you for I'm so sorry. <laughs> but I was thinking about like in relation to like Rachel Chapman's Tony speech, and I was like, okay, so like if we all listen to Rachel's Tony speech, which I feel like people are, like, uh, and among other things that they're listening to, uh, how long do we listen to it for? Mm-hmm. Like, and is it just going to be a phase? Or can we sustain the trend in some way? <laughs> very excited about this. Fingers crossed. Yeah. So I, I I don't know, but you know, I mean, so many people are doing their part in spades. Like you're doing your part in spades. There's so many amazing directors who are mentoring the next generation. I'm I'm the beneficiary of that. Like, um, uh, but. Now I want to think about something so random, like a, an uplifting note. <laughs> Sorry. No, 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 no. I love all this part because uh, I don't feel I don't feel like people talk enough enough about any of this, and everyone's always like, "Oh, theater is so great, and we're all happy, and it's like very Glee Club like." Yeah. But in reality, I think we're one of the fields that's most behind when it comes to the arts. Really, I think so. Maybe like I don't know, like the like fine arts would also be behind, but theater compared to like film and television, which are already very, very, very depressing. Yeah, right. Theater is just like all the way, all the way, all the way, all the way behind. Um, after the run of Endlings at your theater workshop and your Carmen at Lincoln Center, what are you working on next? Uh, I'm developing a, a bunch of different musicals, which I'm having so much fun doing. I'm going to be so happy. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, uh, and new musicals. Um, and actually, two revivals. Um, and uh, we're hoping that there will be a future for uh, the Avita from, from City Center. So, fingers, fingers crossed. Um, and uh, I am directing a new musical, the, the one I'm allowed to talk about. Uh, is called uh, Joy, um, and uh, it's it's a new musical that's um, uh, there's a movie by the same name that Jennifer Lawrence was was in. You're doing that? Yeah, yeah. Um, I'm very excited about it, and uh, uh, the other two I am not allowed to talk about, but um, but that one I'm, I'm, I'm so jazzed about, and like it's fun for me because 
Um, my parents and I joke that it's the first thing I've directed where no one dies. Um, <laughs> <laughs> like, it's a very, like, happy... Um, I mean, like, there, there are dark moments in it, but, like, it, it's, it's a feel-good musical, and I'm like, wow. <laughs> and, and it's funny because, you know, my, my, my like, sweet extended family from from Westchester has been so kind and like coming to, to all my things and um, uh, they're like wow you're just like so like dark and serious and I was like just like don't come for a while and then come to joy <laughs> like it's gonna be your thing it's gonna be so great um, so um, uh, I'm really excited about Okay, two questions. Who wrote that, and have you met have you met Jay Long? <laughs> I have not met. I met Joy, the real Joy. Oh wow, uh, uh, which is great. I'm going to her house on Monday, huh? um, which is fun. Yeah, uh, 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 Anne Marie and Ken Davenport wrote it. Um, oh, wow, that's uh, so exciting. Yeah, and we're doing it with um, uh, Andy Einhorn among among others. So um, uh, it's fun, and it's 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 very uh, fast tracked in the sense that you know. Um, uh, they started writing it less than a year ago, and we already had a full ten-hour reading. So um, it's it's just like boom, boom, boom. Um, in a way that's exciting because you know most musicals take like eight years now. So it's it's, it's, it's so, so, so really to, to to be you know, on that. I'm imagining like this like big miracle mop. Must <laughs> <laughs> be perfectly my my dogs are named Busby and Berkeley. So. Not far off, but no, we're, we're intentionally sort of like keeping the mob imagery out of it. Um, uh, because, you know, it's, it's a show about a mob, but it's a show about way more than a mob. Right. Um, so, uh, uh, yeah. Another unsung heroine in a way, right? Right. Yeah. It's a totally unsung heroine. And, and a woman who, like, really carved out a path for herself in business where one did not exist. Um, and uh, I, I admire her so much. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm excited to be telling your story. She has like dozens of pens, right? Does she just get creating and creating and inventing and inventing things that were not around before she was? I, I was when I started working on it. I like looked at my closet and I was like, oh, I've been using her huggable hangers my entire life. <laughs> wow, I love that. Yeah. And you know, one of my favorite Sandy Knoll facts is how <laughs> incredible you are at collecting Evita memorabilia. <laughs> and I had a chance to see all these things that I keep telling everyone, and then I saw this that like, book that they gave the kids, and they had to read about yes. everyone and all of that. And uh, uh, last year I asked you if you had a, a favorite piece, and you know you didn't have one, and I was just wondering if by now you have an absolute favorite piece of Evita memorabilia that you own. Oh gosh. Um, hmm. That, that, that book that we looked at, it's, it's, a, it's a textbook from 1951 that the kids would use um, uh, in, in schools that was like all, all propaganda, as you said. Um, that's probably my favorite. I, I, I gave away some of my memorabilia, I know. It was because it felt like such a good gift to people. I gave, I gave one thing to Tim Rice because it felt Beautiful, <laughs> um, uh, and then and then some to you know a few a few of the folks who worked on the show, um, uh, but antiquing in Argentina was 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 very meaningful to me. But yeah, I think it's you know it falls into the category of of, of things that are like uh, historical related to the subject matter, and then um, there was so much around the production of that show that was so meaningful to me, like. Uh, 
you know, talking to the writers was such, was such a meaningful facet of, of that, and um, uh, uh, getting to do the show in New York, and um, you know, the photos of the show mean a lot to me because sometimes it was I think about it as it was so fast that I forget that it happened, um, <laughs> but but. but I mean, it's always such a joy talking to you. Thank you so much for, for coming. <laughs> Thanks for having me. This is such a, such a treat. As a listener, I'm, I'm jazzed. <laughs> Thank you so much, Sam. Thank you. And remember, theater is way more fun when you bring a friend. Fine.